We're here with Brent Rosen. He is the president and CEO of the National Food and Beverage Foundation, which is the parent organization of the new SOFAB Research Center at Nunez Community College. I love that introduction. How formal. I feel, I feel really <laughs> important. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on to talk a little bit about the Research Center. For those of you who don't know, part of the mission of our organization, the National Food and Beverage Foundation, is a library and research center and archive that will be opening October 6th on the campus of Nunez Community College. We were really excited as an organization to partner with a community college and make all of the materials that we've gathered over the years available for their students, as well as the students from all of the other culinary programs in New Orleans. But then also we now have a, a research center that combines the books, the archival material, the artifact storage all in one place, which creates an incredibly comprehensive source of information and research materials for food researchers, not just from our area, but really from around the country or around the world. It will be one of the, the greatest collections of food research that, that really anybody has, especially on the Gulf Coast. Yes, I'm really excited about it too. And when you think about all the special collections that we have, for example, the great community cookbook collection that we have, I don't think you're going to find one that matches what we have that tells the story of a time and place with each book. It's really exciting. And those are the things that really do give future researchers the opportunity to understand how real people ate in the past. And you can learn a lot from menus from restaurants, but oftentimes what you're finding out is how elite people ate. You really aren't learning, you know, what did real people who had you know, real jobs and, and went to work all day, what did they come home and have for dinner? And it's those community cookbooks and the resources that we have in the library that not only can shed light on that, but really help broaden people's understanding of all of the culinary traditions that we have in the Southeast and beyond. I think all of that is absolutely true. It's also true that beyond just what people ate in our food culture, the culture includes so many different aspects and all of those things are represented in the research center, whether we're talking about waste management or we're talking about foraging or agriculture, all of that comes together in one way or another, either through ephemera that we have, through artifacts, or sometimes even through books. Well, and you bring up all of those things, Liz, and I appreciate that because the reason why I'm visiting with you today on your show is to encourage your listeners to help us with the research center. And there's, there's two great ways to do that. And you can visit our website at southernfood.org slash research center. But if you just go to the homepage, you'll see a pop-up that will take you right to the page on our library and research center facility at Nunez. And what we're looking for is help with two things. One is materials for the library and research center. So if you have cookbooks, culinary books, nutrition books, any sort of books, restaurant menus, pamphlets, paraphernalia of any kind that you just can't seem to find a place for or don't know how to store or would like to be stored by someone or by an organization that can really do it properly and make sure it's available for the future, let us know. And we have a form on the website that you can fill out explaining the materials that you have and, and then how you can get them to us. And then the other area where we could use your help is financially. And the library, while it's not an enormous cost because of our partnership with Nunez, 
we still have a number of things that need to be purchased. And so we are looking for people who are in the community who would be wanting to support something like this. And um, we have created a, a form where you can also uh, donate money to the research center. And so if you have the time and the interest and you've enjoyed Liz's podcast and want to know a little bit more about our work, visit our website, check it out, see what we're doing. And I hope that we see everybody October the 6th at the official opening. Thank you so much, Liz. I appreciate it. Y'all have a good one. Thank you. Bye-bye. No matter who you are, a connection to ancestors is a part of our identity. That is why the SOFAB Research Center collects material in many languages and in a wide range of subjects. We hear from Vish Bhatt of Snack Bar in Oxford, Mississippi, talking about food, identity, and our connection to the past and to the future. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Vishwes Bhatt from Oxford, Mississippi, via India. He is the executive chef of Snack Bar. He won the James Beard Foundation Award for Best Chef South in 2019. He has written a terrific and very beautiful book, I Am From Here. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, Vish. Thank you for having me. So I really want to know what inspired you to write this book, because it is not only a wonderful cookbook with lots of innovative food in it, but it also is very beautiful. Well, thank you. I mean, part of the book, part of the idea was, you know, for, for a while was to to tell a story about my journey of how I how I came here and how I came to live in the South and how I see myself as as being a Southerner. So that that was the impetus behind writing the book. Uh, but the only way I know how to tell a story is through recipes. And, <laughs> I wanted to make sure I picked out recipes that made sense because I've always said that uh, the place I grew up in and the place I call home now have a lot of things in common. Uh, and so I wanted to illustrate through the ingredients in, in the book, especially the main ingredients that that there was is a, is a parallel. So tell me how you made those choices and what foods you chose. So, I mean, if- came fairly easily. I wanted to make sure that I talked about and wrote about ingredients that I had grown up with, but then were also prevalent when I moved to the U.S. And, mm-hmm. and so we start off with rice, which is a universal grain, I think used everywhere in the world, mm-hmm. but has strong connection to India as, as one of the countries where rice originated. And then, and then from there, it came across Africa into the American South. So start there and then talk about things like tomatoes and okras and peas and greens, lamb and, and pork, uh, shrimp, potatoes, you know, things like that, that everyone grows up eating 
and so did I. And so there, there are a lot of connections with these foods. There are stories of how these foods got from one place to the other. Uh-huh. Uh, some fun stories, some very tragic stories. Uh, and so I just wanted to, you know, sort of highlight those ingredients that that are common to two places that I've called home. And so how do you see the food culture of the American South different from the food culture you grew up in? It's not very different. I mean, if you, you don't have to go too far back to realize that the idea of, of sharing food and having a meal with family and friends is, is a very common notion in Gujarat where I grew up and in the South. And that's still the case for a lot of people, but as you know, everybody sort of moves on to, to cities to work and, and have less time. And, and you know, we, we stop cooking, the gatherings get fewer and fewer, and then it just becomes once or twice a year. What used to be a daily occurrence where a family would sit down together and eat, and then it, you know, that has sort of dissipated a little bit. But that's how I grew up. I grew up in a large family where the meal was the central conduit to all the discussions that happened. You know, we, we, we would talk about school or about sporting events or, uh, you know, but also, you know, politics and, you know, asking about how, how folks were doing, inquiring about people's health, even matchmaking happened at, at meals. So, uh, and that that's very much the case here as well. I mean, if you look at the gatherings that happen around, around Sunday suppers, that is what it is. I mean, it, it is a social gathering uh, where the community comes together and sort of checks in on each other. And, and food is sort of the one element that brings everyone together. Right. And there's something very civilizing about that, where you have multiple generations and you have people who learn something from the other because you're all together. And you're, in a sense, especially when you're a child, you're captive at the table. And, right. uh, and so you just have to make the best of it. So when you're a teenager and you have all those secrets that you don't want to share, you still have to participate. I, I remember that a lot at Sunday dinners at my Sicilian grandmother's house. Wonderful meals, always fabulous. But that moment when you're just saying... Hmm, when is this going to be over? Because I want to go talk to my friends. And as good as the food was, it was more than just a meal. It was something exactly. else. It was a family experience that was ritualized. And exactly. that that's something I think we do kind of miss a little bit here. As time goes by, people are much less given, I think, to the regular like Sunday meal. Yes, we are. But, you know, what made me comfortable here in, in the South and, and and want, you know, to stay here is, while it's not as frequent as it used to be, this, this getting together part is still very important, uh, right? right? It still exists. I mean, yes, it is, it is becoming less and less common, but and, it is. And, now, and it's often more around a restaurant meal than, say, a home-cooked meal. Sure. Yeah. People would, people go out now. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, but there's still that element of, of, of gathering, which is yes, yes. so nice. Yes. Yes, it is. And I also think that in the South, restaurants 
are tolerant of multiple generations at the table. And I've seen where restaurants don't want little children and they sort of trumpet that by not having a booster seat or not having some ways that accommodate children. And yet, if you don't start bringing children to eat early, they never really learn how to do it. And then they're stuck with kind of McDonald's manners or whatever you want to call it, where (laughs) they don't understand that you wait for the meal and that everybody just talks when you're waiting. I, I remember when I was a child going out to dinner with my parents and they would order me a Shirley Temple when they had a cocktail because um, everybody had a cocktail. So I got one too. And that's so much better to me than just saying, oh, we don't want the child to come. <laughs> yes. I, I think in, anytime we're excluding people, it's a bad thing. Right, right. So I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the recipes that you selected. How did you decide what to put into the book? (laughs) Uh, It was a process in in the sense that, you know, I wanted the recipes to sort of be a transition. So, you know, recipes that are, there are some that are very Indian-ish in their Mm -hmm. outlook, Mm -hmm. Uh, traditional Indian, if you will, sort of progress into what one would consider, you know, quote unquote, more uh southern uh-huh. uh, and that was the idea the idea is to say take take an ingredient and show how versatile it is and how it is used in in places and then try to connect people and places through that recipe so that, that was that's the attempt anyway so one recipe that i particularly enjoyed was the shrimp with okra and coconut milk so is that kind of traditional or is that something that you it, um traditional ish right so it's it's a it's a take on on a dish they do in south india particularly in kerala uh but it, it's it's a dish that shows i mean so the west coast of southern west coast of india uh traded uh with the middle east and then was also where the portuguese landed and it is also where saint thomas ended up and so it, it's got this westward looking food culture right because it, it influences came from from outside uh, and so that's the whole point of of saying hey you know food is not uh stationary it moves right and as it moves it evolves into uh whatever the people it goes to make it uh-huh. um, and so here's a recipe you know we're looking at at shrimp which we think of as sort of a southern coastal thing here right okra again a very southern thing but then bringing in this element of coconut milk which you know now of course that's also you know uh, if, if you're if you're in places like houston and new orleans and you know it's it's not such a foreign component right but at one point it was considered very exotic and so the idea that, hey, here's, here are some ingredients that we know really well that are also eaten somewhere else that's very far away. Uh, but really, they're not so far away if you actually just look at the history of how these things moved around. And, and some of the same people they were bringing, you know, were trading uh, in, in spices and, and other things, but also the ones that were then trading uh, you know, with, you know, whether it was timber or whatever uh-huh. here. So right. there, there's a lot of connections there. 
Right, right. It, uh, it, anyway, I just found that to be particularly delicious. <laughs> and right. I also loved your smoked catfish pate. That also was one of those things that yeah. I found really, really good. So tell me about that. Uh, so, okay, well, I mean, let's, let's be honest. I mean, that, that's a recipe I, I, you know, almost stole from John Kearns, right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, he, he taught me this, this way of, of stuffed up smoking. We used to do at City Grocery a lot, you know, because we didn't have a big smoker. So uh -huh. setting up a, with some wood chips and, and, you know, creating smoke and flavoring things. So catfish, I mean, that's that's the one ingredient that, you know, if you live in Mississippi, you know, it's... It's, it's ubiquitous. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think it's sort of, sort of something lowly and not important. You know, how would you put that on the table? And my, I wanted to make sure that we you know, talked about how something like that, and you know, it, it could be anything. You could, you know, uh, I know it, it's catfish here, but it could be bluegill in, in the Carolinas. I mean, that, that these really simple uh, fish, that has a big impact on the livelihoods of people. Uh -huh. And I was sure that I included that. I mean, if, if I'm going to claim I'm from Mississippi, then I was not going to, not have catfish recipes in the book um, right. right right yeah but also I mean, as i said you know i, I said in, in the in the book as well and I, i've said it to people it's like if you can't get catfish then then think of something that is around that is thought of as you know well we don't eat that or we can't serve that uh-huh and then right it's 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 important to to go back to those because those you know, little, you know, whether it's seafood or, or you know, whether it's, uh, you know, things like, you know, turkey necks or whatever, those have stories. There's a reason those things became, uh, you know, came into the repertoire uh, of, of, of recipes. Right. So let's go back and, and figure out why it is. And then you'll learn more about your family and you'll learn more about the history. And all of a sudden things start making sense. So be proud of what, you know, uh, what is available right right okay one more one more recipe i really want to talk about is the recipe that you call slow cooked okra with garam masala and yogurt okay. so i happen to be a a an okra fan so i have no problems with okra but right. for those people who have problems with okra what do you tell them I tell them to pack up and move. I mean, they don't need. <laughs> no. no. Uh, <laughs> well, what I tell them is what I learned from my dad is like, oh, you you don't like okra because you haven't had tried my okra. Uh, right. you know, no, right. it's, it's give it a try. This is this is why there are recipes uh, in in the book that may be slightly different. So if if you've only seen okra done one way, here's your chance to to experiment with it. Look at some other options, and figure out if it is the okra you don't like, or if it's the method it's cooked that you don't like. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And 99% of the time, usually it is, you know, it's not the ingredient, right? That's People just I add it, you know, uh, sometimes it's a texture thing, sometimes it's a flavor thing, but it's a, they've only had it one way and they don't know that they, you could do other things with it that is yeah. a lot of fun. I think that's really true. That's what I tell people about eggplant. 
people mm -hmm. who say, oh, I don't like eggplant. And of course I'm thinking, how can you not like eggplant? But <laughs> nevertheless, people say that. And I always think it's because you just didn't have it cooked by the right person. That's yeah. all. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm going to tell you an okra story about my mother. Um, my mother is the daughter of Sicilian immigrants. And so she grew up speaking Sicilian at home and didn't learn English until she went to school. And yet she was very much a New Orleanian and she was much more modern because she grew up in those times when women began to wear pants and all of that sort of thing. So she does not like okra. Now, she grew up in the Sicilian community in New Orleans, and she married my father, who the community called the American. He was from Louisiana, and he liked okra. And my mother really didn't like okra. And she made all kinds of accommodations for him. She cooked rice more than she might have wanted to because she would have gone with pasta much, much more, things like that. But okra was something she just couldn't do. And my father would like stop at gas stations and get jars of pickled okra at gas stations. You know, this, these people do their own and I want to bring it home. And so he would just make sure he had his okra anyway. But finally, he suggested to her one day when she was making jardiniera and of course, you don't traditionally put okra in jardiniera, but he said, I'm going to run to the store because it was the right season. I'm going to run to the store. I'm going to get some okra. And would you put it in the jardiniera? And so she did. And she made a few extra jars so that she would have some without okra. And um, but she she tried the okra that came out of it and she began to like that. And, and so it was kind of that beginning. Um, mm -hmm. She had to find a way to, exactly. you know, to, to find a way that she could accept it. And then, because she wouldn't eat my father's pickled okra because it was okra. But then once right. she had put her hands on it and cooked, not cooked it, but, you know, put it yeah. into her pickles, then she thought, well, I'll at least try it. And then she always made her jardiniera with okra after that. Um, partially for my father's sake, but also because it was acceptable to her. And she stopped making like two batches, you know, the one with okra and the one without. And I agree with you. You have to find a way. You have to find a way that it's, it's something that you, you can eat and then it's, it's all right. Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you this. Do you have a recipe for that jardinera? I do. Yes. It's in my cookbook. All right. <laughs> I, mean, I thought about putting okra, but yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm going to do that. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's, it's so local. It becomes a local ingredient, which is really the whole idea of it. It's like, here we have yeah. an abundance. Let's make pickles, you know? Yeah. So um, I always think about my mother when I think about okra, just because right. of that. It was her epiphany, you know, okra is, is acceptable. <laughs> and I don't know what it was about it that she didn't like, um, mm. because she was pretty, um, pretty broad in her, her food <laughs> experiments and she would taste anything. You know, 
the Sicilian repertoire. It wasn't there, so it was never really prepared. I mean, I, you know, that's, so you had never really worked with it then, it, you know, so yeah, I mean, I, and I understand that, you know, uh, as growing up, you know, in, in a in a completely vegetarian family, I, I understand that sort of like, uh, yeah, oh, this, you know, these ribs are great. Well, you know, to, to get yourself to eat that first one, uh -huh. but never really ever, you know, had any idea of what it is. Right, right. That, so. Well, she was she was pretty pretty experimental, and when you think about, it, of course, she didn't she wasn't in Sicily, so she only she had the New Orleans overlay on that thing that she grew up with as a child, but she was a New Orleanian, so I was always surprised that somehow this was her stopping point, and why is it okra? You eat all oh. this other stuff, you know. <laughs> But once I eat okra, I, I will lose uh, what little I'm. <laughs> <laughs> it will transform me, you know, I'll never go home again. <laughs> anyway, oh, that's so funny. Okay, so we had kind of talked for a minute uh, before we got started on this podcast about your journey and sort of my connection to it or how I kind of saw connections to it. Right from my grandparents, great-grandparents. My great-grandfather was a butcher in the French market in New Orleans. And mother, my grandmother rather, came over as an 18-year-old. She'd grown up in Palermo. So then my mother was first generation. And then I knew so many people who were part of the Sicilian community in New Orleans. And I still felt connected to it, even though I certainly was removed at the same time um, and didn't grow up speaking Sicilian or anything like that. But my children, to them, it's just an abstract idea. And right. wonder if you worry about that in your family. Uh, I mean, yes, right. And, and the thing is, I don't have, uh, we don't have any children, but I see it with, with nieces and nephews and not only just, you know, ones that have migrated here, also, the ones in India, and this is the same here, you know, because people are moving away, right. uh, you know, and, and they have other influences and other things they want to do. And so uh, family, while it's still important, you kind of start taking it for granted because it's there, right? Mm -hmm. And so you move away from it and then you stop communicating and then you stop thinking about, you know, family gatherings because, you know, you're, you're hanging out with friends and this, that, the other, and soon you know you were not you know cooking the family recipes or eating family recipes uh and the more that happens the further you get away the more it gets lost uh because and, and the and the what i have noticed is is it's not intentional because there's always the intent that i'm going to go back and i'm, I'm going to get these recipes because you always think they're there right uh-huh uh -huh. And who knows that recipe you didn't get a chance to talk to and write jot things down and she didn't make notes and poof it's gone mm -hmm. right yeah. uh, so you know and that's uh, you know that's i see that happening i mean not only for people who move away from home but also be not you know far away from into a different country but also within you know within the south within 
my family in India. A lot of, lot of the, you know, also because the way people live has changed, right? I, I'm the last generation where my grandmother had cows and we got fresh milk and we went to the local flour mill to get our grain ground to have fresh flour and sesame seeds were ground for sesame oil and I'm the last generation and I'm not that you know this so the next generation never saw that and their kids have no idea think about it yeah Mm -hmm. a concept of flour mill is like why would you want to do that when you can just go to the store and Mm -hmm. somebody's flour for you you know so it's up to us to to tell those stories and I mean, I'm not saying people have to go back and, you know, go grind flour, but just saying, hey, there's a connection. There are communities, uh, you know, here. This is the reason uh, this family is is friends with our family and why they're important to us because, you know, they, they provided us with, you know, butter or whatever it is. Right. And those connections. Um, and, and that's, you know, and that comes from storytelling and that comes from, you know, so, so the responsibility goes both ways. The elders have to sort of, you know, make sure they're somehow keeping track of, of these things, uh, you know, whether it's just a, a diary or, or little notes or, you know, occasionally sending an email or whatever it is like, hey, by the way, I thought of, you know, your great grand, great aunt's recipe, uh, whether you make it or not, you know, here it is. So at least it's, it's somewhere when someone comes along and asks about it, you can then go dig it out. Right, right? yeah, um, yeah. Uh, because there, I mean, you know, I've, I've noticed, you know, with, I mean, my nephew, he's 25 and he lives in New York and, you know, he, he, he's he got a startup and that's what he does. And he, But he likes to eat food. He lives in New York, so he loves food. And he's, you know, always going to all the cool restaurants in New York. And every once in a while, you know, he will like, Hey, I wanted to cook the grandma's, you know, tomato soup. You have the recipe, and I fortunately happen to have it. If I didn't have it, then you know that would be the end of it. You right, know? right. So, so you're that, the keeper. You're the keeper of the I, recipes. We all need to be keepers, and, mm-hmm. and, and right. I mean, it's. I think it's it's very important because I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, family values and family and 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 culture and stuff like that. Uh, you have to maintain, I mean, this is probably the largest part of culture, right? right. What, I, uh, food. Right. Right. No, I, I totally agree. And I, I want to say that in your book, I think that is abundantly clear that there's family and extended family, not necessarily everybody is related, you know, that right. bigger family. All of that is very clearly written through this book. And that was something that I enjoyed very, very much about it. Besides the fact that the recipes are great, there was just that sense of it that made you feel warm just about the book, even without cooking. Well, great. Thank you. I mean, you know, that was the idea. Uh, And I I don't know if it was, you know, the idea was to, to make, you know, to, to sort of convey this that I'm, I'm part of a community that's take you know has been very good to me and to sort of say hey you know thank you for for taking care of me the one way I know how to take care of you is by feeding you all so you know it's a reciprocal thing yeah yeah that's really wonderful I want to thank you so much for being with us today and thank you for writing I am from here which is a really really terrific book that everybody should have on their bookshelf
thank you very much for having having me and I look forward to coming to New Orleans and, and seeing you again and eating some good food. Yes. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.